Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. The title of the message tonight is Why You Need the Bible. Why You Need the Bible. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's a good question. I'd love to hear why I need the Bible. And others of you are thinking, come on, we're, we're in church. Do you really have to tell us why we need the Bible? I mean, there's like, you know, 50 Bibles on, you know, on the pews and everything. Of course, we, we need the Bible. Of course, we look at the Bible every week. We're, we're Bible people. We're a Bible church. We're a biblical, scripturally sound uh, church. Why do you have to even go there? But a question that I asked, have had to ask myself and have been, you know, definitely convicted by is this question of whether or not, how much time have I actually spent um, really studying the Bible this, this week, um, this year. And by studying, I don't mean just sort of reading it very quickly for five minutes in the morning to, you know, tick it off in my, you know, reading plan, but really just looking at the words, looking at a sentence of Scripture, looking at a paragraph of Scripture, and, and really wrestling with the meaning of that paragraph and, and then attempting, by, with God's help, to then apply that meaning to my own life and to the lives of people around me. Um, how much time have I really spent strengthening the foundation of my faith by discovering what God has to say in his word? How much time have I invested in 2018 doing that? And how much time have you and we as a community invested in doing that. And so the point of this message, of course, is to encourage you to do that more. If you're, even if you're doing it just a little bit, to sort of you know, fan that spark into flame. That's, that's, what, I, that's what I want to do here um, when it comes to the Bible. So I hope this is not meant to be a, uh, you know, a talk where I'm, you know, telling you that you're doing it all wrong and condemning you at, at all. Like we're all on this journey of discovering the Lord and knowing God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. And so we want to press on to know him. We want to press on to know him more this year. Um, you may have heard, like um, the song tells us a thousand stories of what you think God is like. But how do you really know what he's like? How do you know that he is a good father? I mean, we sing it, but how do you really know? Where do you come to, to have that conviction sort of really solidified and strengthened in yourself? Is it something that you just wait for God to whisper in your ear in the middle of the night? Or is there a more certain, firm foundation that we can turn to to really know what God is like, to really know God? And not just facts about God so we can win at a quiz night, but really know Him, to really know Him, like you would know a friend, like you would know your spouse or your child. How do we do that? Well, since I've, this, I've already said this is mentioned about the Bible, the, the Bible clearly would have something to do with it. And we're going to look at a particular chapter of the Bible. We're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can turn open to 2 Peter chapter 1. Because the, what I'm going to do for the remainder of the time tonight is just walk through that chapter and make some comments about it along the way. That's kind of my outline. That's where I'm going. So you can follow along. 2 Peter chapter 1. My hope and our hope as a church for each of you is that it, you would grow in being a man or woman of the word. That your life, that your faith, that your feelings, that your hope would be built on the foundation of the word of God, of what God says to you in his word in the Bible. So 2 Peter chapter 1, we're just going to, we'll start there, and I'm reading uh, from the, 
the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which is a fairly new uh, translation, but one that I've been enjoying recently. So if my wording is a bit different, that's why. Um, So we'll start in verse 1. Actually, before I start, let me let me pray, and then we'll uh, we'll get into it. Lord, thank you that we can be here tonight. Lord, it's not an accident that any one of us is here. You, Lord, have a word to speak to us through your unchanging word. So, Lord, as we open it up and, and read it and and seek to understand what it means, Lord, would you take your eternal beautiful, life-giving words, and apply them to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we can't do that on our own. There's no no trick that we can do to really to get this. This is a a work of your grace to us. Lord, we want to receive that tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Simeon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have received a faith equal to ours, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let me give you a little context for this letter. This is a letter written by Simon Peter, or he's called Simeon Peter here. Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He features a lot in the story of Jesus, in the life of Jesus. He was in Jesus' inner circle. And we know that because he tells us later on in chapter 1 that he wrote this letter very shortly before he died. He's an old man. He's had a lot of ministry experience, a lot of life experience, but he's about to die. He doesn't have very many days left. And so in the dying moments that he could have used in many, many ways, he uses a great deal of those moments to compose this letter. He doesn't specify who it's written to. It says this, that it's written to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice that right up up to the very end of Peter's life, and, and Peter was seen, even in his own lifetime, as having a special and significant and even unique authority in the church. There were those who would have looked to Peter and thought that he was up there, up here on a a high platform or pedestal, and that they were down there. And certainly that has continued all the way today. You know, there are some uh, Christians in the the world who would put Peter up here in some this unattainable, next-to-Jesus sort of position. But that's not how Peter views himself. He says he's writing to those who have obtained a faith equal to ours. There there is no such thing as a super apostle or a super spiritual Christian. If you've received the righteousness of Jesus, then you are one of his children on equal footing with Peter and the apostles. And he's writing to those people. We don't know who they are. He doesn't give them names. He doesn't mention a location. He's just writing to Christians. And interestingly enough, in this text, in verse 1, where he says, the, he talks about the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is actually one of the clearest verses in all the New Testament where Jesus is identified with and made equal to God. He's our God and Savior. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The word knowledge shows up seven times in the English translation of Second Peter. Now, seven is not a big number, but there's only three chapters. Only three chapters in Second Peter, and knowledge is there seven times. So it's significant. And what kind of knowledge is he referring to? He's specifically talking about knowledge of God, knowing God, knowing Jesus. And we know from verse 1 that Jesus is God. And here he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in or through this knowledge of God. In or through this knowledge of God. Now, this is a blessing. You'll note, if you know much, if you've read a lot of the letters in the New Testament, there's always this grace and peace is a formula 
that shows up in a lot of Christian letters. And so you might be, and I often am, sort of um, tend to kind of skip over it. Oh yeah, that's the grace and peace thing. Okay, moving on to the real meat. And yet Peter actually packs something very significant here in this blessing in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. I don't know about you, but grace and peace are actually really useful things to have. They're actually really wonderful things to have in a world where there is not a lot of grace or peace to be found. And yet here, grace and peace, may it be multiplied to you, not just, you know, this is not Peter sending good vibes here. He's saying, may these things come to you, may you have these things, may you receive them, may you possess them through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. So there's something about knowing God. As you know God, as you know him, as you see him as he is, as you know Jesus, as you see him as he is, that in that knowing, through that knowing, grace and peace are multiplied to you. There is great benefit, you see, in knowing God. Verse 3. His divine power has given us Everything required for life and godliness through, again, what? Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Verse 3, this is a very startling claim. God has given you already, past tense, If you're a Christian, everything you need for life and godliness. Now, that's not to say he's given you everything you need in the physical sense. If you know, some of you say, Oh, I need, I have debt. I need money to pay off my debt. I need a spouse. I need a good grade in my assignment. I, you know, there are things that we need in life. So it's not referring to those kinds of needs. He's saying he's given you everything you need for life and for godliness. So what you need to attain life and godliness, that's what he has given you. You have everything already that you need. And life and godliness go together. Why? Why do they go together? Well, think about this. One of the ways that Jesus described the Christian life, what does it mean when you become a Christian, when you are, um, when you believe for the first time? Jesus described it or compared it to being born again, to being reborn, to be born a second time. Um, And if you think about this, I don't know how, you know, how many of you are, are parents in probably not, you know, there's not, uh, you know, many of you that are parents, but those of you who have been parents or have, um, you know, seen babies, you know that for the first year, maybe in the first two or three years of a baby's life, all the adults that are in this child's life, all the conversation about this child tends to be focused on how this child is what? Changing and growing all the time. I had a conversation even just a week ago with a young dad of, uh, you know, got a a beautiful six-month-old daughter. And he said to me, he said, every day that I come home from work, I feel like she's changed. She's, She's doing something new. She's made a new sound, or she's grown a little bit, or she's, you know, you know, able to sit up just a little bit straighter. And we noticed these things because the changes happen so quickly and the, and the developments are so startling in that you know, one to three years. The same thing is true of your Christian life. When you begin as a Christian, you begin as a baby, as someone who is still quite um, unsure what it means to be godly. What, what does that look like for you and your life and with your personality and your circumstances and the journey that you begin with Jesus is that a journey of 
beginning to work those things out. That's why Paul said to work, he tells us all to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. So it's this sort of dynamic thing where, you know, he tells you to do to work out your salvation, to become more godly, to become more like Jesus, and yet, well, I'm going to be the one that does that in you. And that's that's what the Christian life is. It and here, you already have everything you need to do that. You have everything you need to grow up in Christ, to become mature. Now, on the flip side of that, we can say, why do life and godliness go together? Well, why is it that life and growth, physical life and physical growth, go together. If you again, if, if you have a baby at, at that six, you know, that early stages, and that baby is not growing, and there are no, there just aren't those sort of developmental milestones being reached. We know, we know, we begin to become very anxious and concerned that there is something physically wrong with this baby because it's not growing it's not developing now the same thing is true for us as christians if we are not if there are no signs at all of growing and developing and changing and you know and godliness that is emerging ever so slowly into your life it's a sign that there is something seriously wrong and if there's no growth at all no movement at all then quite likely there's no life Life and godliness go together. And you have, and this is the good news, everything. This is not something you have to go and do by yourself, on your own, off in, in some, you know, on some spiritual pilgrimage. No, you already have everything you need for this to take place in your life. And what is it that you have? What is it that you have? You have the knowledge of God. You have his promises, his great and precious promises, and something about those promises, something about knowing him, that's what you have already that you need for life and godliness. It's this divine electricity that is yours. It's power. J.A. Packer Back in the 70s, he wrote a book called Knowing God, and it's all about this. It's, you know, just unpacking what the Bible says, essentially, about God, just the very basics. And uh, he says that if you're a Christian and you don't actually make an effort to know God, to grow in your knowing of God, that it's actually like a form of self-cruelty, because again, to use the analogy with our physical growth, for a, for a baby or for you to grow and continue to develop and be healthy, you have to nourish yourself. If you don't nourish yourself, you won't grow. You won't develop. Same thing is true for your spiritual life and for your heart. You don't nourish yourself by feeding on the knowledge of God, you won't grow. And it's a form of self-starvation, self-cruelty. And if, you know, we're, we're meant to, you know, if, if, this, if you knew someone in your life that was literally not feeding themselves, not nourishing themselves, if you, were a, if you love that person, you're going to jump and you're going to intervene. You're going to say, that's not good. You need help. We're going we're gonna to come around you. We're going to help you. Same thing for us in our, phys, in our spiritual walk. With God. If you're not nourishing yourself on the promises of God, on the knowledge of God, if you're not in this word we need to come around each other. We need to intervene and say, you, you, you're starving yourself. This is not good for your soul. And that's what Peter's doing here. Remember Peter's dying? He's dying. And this is the la- he could have said 100,000 different things, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what he says. How do we break the cycle of spiritual starvation? We are... And I don't have statistics to back this up. This is anecdotal. But I don't think that many of you will argue with me on this. But we are the least biblically literate generation of Christians, at least in, West, in Western history. What I mean by that is we... 
They ha- I don't have statistics, but I have, I have evidence. They, they have done surveys where they go and ask people. And these are people in churches. And the, the, these were done in America, so maybe we're doing you know, heaps better here in Australia. I don't know. In, okay, so in America, where I come from, it, you know, pe- they'll go around and ask people like, just what questions, sort of trivial sort of thing, trivia questions about the Bible. And it's, it's pretty shocking. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go and give you any examples. But j- these are people in church. This is not just people out on the street. Like, we, just, we do not know what is in this book, by and large. We just, we just don't know. And, and, and so, again, I'm, I'm saying the knowledge that I'm talking about is not the knowledge of the original Greek word for this or that. Or the, I'm not talking about things that are relatively trivial. I'm talking about basic, the storyline from Genesis to Revelation and how God reveals himself in that and where Jesus and the cross fits and where you and I fit, where the church fits in this. Because it's, it's just basic stuff that we, by and large, as Christians, don't. No, because we don't study it. We, we don't spend time in it. And, and so we just don't know it. So what do you need for life and godliness? You need to know God. You need his promises. And what happens when you know God and you know his promises? Peter says there at the end of verse 4 that you escape from sin and evil desire in the world and you come to share in the divine nature. In other words, you move away from desiring sin and the world and corrupt things to desiring more and more of God and his hope and his promises. And that's how it works, right? You, um, let's say, well, I just really struggle with a desire to read. I just, I just can't. I'm not motivated to do it. Um, I'd rather sleep in. And that's honest. That's fine. I feel that way a lot of the time. How do you get over that? You get over, I, I don't have a magic formula other than to say you get over that by actually doing it. I, I, had a, I took a fitness class when I was in uni, and I, it was the basketball coach. I was, well, I, I was like one of the least athletic, fit people um, in the class by far. And you know, so I asked, I actually asked, what do I do to run faster? I asked this question. <laughs> and the basketball coach looked at me and said, run faster. Thanks. All right, I paid for that. Um, but with the Bible, it's it, because there's a dynamic called God's power. It says the divine power, verse 3. That power is yours through the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have that power. And when you read his words, the power that is in you takes those words and applies those to your heart. And what happens is, is that it increases then your desire for more. You want to increase your hunger for God. You want to increase your desire to read. Read. And I'm not talking about read, spend, you go off and read for eight hours. I'm just talking about start out small, take small steps, and, and, and that desire begins to grow. Jonathan Edwards made a great, had a great quote. He said, talking about all the spiritual, you know, prayer, reading the Bible, meditation, he said, how do you increase your appetite, your hunger for those things? You increase your spiritual appetite, he said, by laying yourself in the pathway of allurement. I mean, this is 1700s, so okay, what did he mean? He, he said that here's, here's, the spiritual disciplines are like this pathway through which the divine power or electricity flows. He said, if you want to experience more of that divine power and increase your hunger for that power, just lay down in the middle of the road. Lay yourself in the way of allurement, and the spirit that is yours will increase your appetite for more. It's, it's just how it works. That's a, it's a promise. It's not a formula. It's not a magic trick. It is God's grace to you. He, is, he loves you. He's your father, and that's how he's designed it. 1 John 3 describes a very similar dynamic. He says, we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him 
because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. I don't know about you, but I, there are time, I want to be pure. I want to be holy as he is holy. I, I want to grow in godliness. I want to change. I want to be more useful. I want to be more worshipful. I want to be more grateful. I want to be more generous. I want... How do you do that? When Jesus appears, when we see him, when I see him as he is in his word and through his spirit, when I see him, I have hope. I have hope, and it's that hope then that drives me to purity. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. That is a categorical statement. Think about it. Everyone. He's saying this is true of anyone who is a Christian. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Just as he's pure. He has no doubt that this will happen. You want to grow and become in purity. You want to grow in holiness. You've got to know him. Lay down in the pathway of allurement, in his word, in prayer. You have everything you need for life and godliness through his divine power. So, you want to have grace and peace overflowing, multiplied to you. You want to be useful for God. You want to be confident in God, filled with the hope of heaven. Then you know God as he reveals himself in his word. This is what you build your life on. If you neglect this word, if you ignore it, if you starve yourself, if you just kind of pick at it, you know, when you're a little peckish and you just go to the fridge and just a little of that, you don't actually nourish yourself with a proper meat and three veg kind of meal or whatever you like to eat, um, but healthy stuff. I, I see a lot of people, I, I read a, a pastor saying, this, this is actually Russell Moore, um, he said, a lot of us, he said, we don't, we're, we've lost the ability to read the Bible because we're so good at quoting the Bible that we're not great at reading it. Some of us, you know, you read it through. I don't, I don't know, you know, you see great Bible verses show up on Instagram sometimes. And, and there are some good ones that look really good on Instagram. There are other verses that don't look good on Instagram. And yet all of this is useful. All of this is powerful. You need John 3.16 in your life. You need 1 John 3.16. You need Job 3.16. God's given it, all of it to you. Don't neglect it. Don't settle for Christianity, for faith that is built on the foundation of your feelings. Your feelings will change based on your circumstances, based on your physical health, based on your age, based on lots of factors. Now, feelings are good. God gives us feelings, but they're not foundational. You can't build your faith on things that will change. That's why Jesus talked about the one who hears my word and does it and does something with what he hears is like a man who builds his house, what, on a rock. It is the foundation. Peter goes on. I'm going to jump down to verses 10 and 11 in Second Peter. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election because if you do these things, you will never stumble. Again, man, he's just so confident. Here's this old, old man. He's about to die. And he said, if you do these things, you'll never stumble. Now, what he's saying there is he, he did not say you'll never sin. He didn't say you'll never do something that you will regret later. He said you'll never stumble. What does he mean by stumble? Well, in the next verse, it says, For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. So to stumble, then, 
is to do some, is to do something or to have something happen that would prevent that from happening, something that would prevent your entry into the kingdom of God. We, to stumble, not to make a little, to, not to sin, not to make a mistake, that you then repent of and keep going. This is to stumble is to stumble out of the faith. To stumble into hypocrisy. To stumble into unbelief. To stumble into false teaching. That's what he means. So if you do these things, you'll never stumble. If you know him, and you press into him, and you press into his promises, and you study his word, you won't stumble. You won't lose confidence. You won't lose hope. You'll be richly rewarded as you enter into his kingdom. That's how you run the race of life well. You be a student of his word. You know him through his word. Verses 12 to 15 of this chapter, Peter again tells us why he's writing. I mentioned this already. He says he's dying. He says, I'm going to lay aside my tent, meaning he's about to die. His body is his tent. And in verse 13, he says, I want to wake you up up. I want to wake you up. I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. That's in the ESV. In the CSV, it says to wake you up. Peter wants you to be woke. He wants you to be awake. How are you going to wake up? How are you going to wake up? You don't need a flashy conference for that. You need his word. You need his word. And Peter is dying and he's saying, don't neglect the power that comes through knowing him. I don't know if Peter knew that what he was writing would be you know, put in the Bible. That it would be translated into countless languages. That it would make it all the way to Australia. But God knew. God knew these words were for the original recipients of this letter, but these words are for you and me. God was guiding Peter as he wrote, inspiring every word, every phrase, every sentence, every paragraph that flowed from his pen to the parchment. So that not only were people in that day encouraged, so that you might be encouraged. Why do you need the Bible? Well, we've already looked at the fruit, the results of knowing God in his word. Grace and peace, overflowing, everything you need for life and godliness, escaping the corruption of our flesh and the world, having the hope of heaven, having your calling and election confirmed so that you're confident that you know that you're a Christian, you know where you're going, you know what your hope is, you're useful in the world. But let's not forget that knowing God is actually an end in itself. It is, it's your highest good. It's why you are alive. Because there's something about knowing God and pressing on in to know Him that is really, really good for you. There's something about it that makes you human. You're created in His image to know him and relate to him. And when you neglect that, you neglect the reason why you're alive. You neglect what it means to be human. Some of you know the the old catechism. What What is the chief purpose or the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You can't glorify God if you don't know him. You can't enjoy him if you don't know him. And you can't know him without his word. Peter, who wrote this. You know, one time, Jesus was preaching. He was preaching and, and he, was, uh, he said, unless, he's telling this big crowd, unless you, each one of you, unless every one of you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot enter my kingdom. Now we've, some of us, you've, you've heard these verses before, so they don't shock you. But for the original audience, they were just like, uh, 
are you asking us to like be cannibals? What are you saying? And all these people, they take off running. They're like, that's just gross. See you later. And all the only people that are left are this, this little small inner circle. There was like thousands of people there. Few people left. Peter's there. And Jesus kind of looks at Peter and says, uh, are you, are you going to go? Are you going to leave as well? And Peter says, where would I go? You alone have the words of life, of eternal life. Where would I go? Peter knew that to know Jesus is why he was alive. And even if Jesus said something that was weird and hard, to leave you is to throw away my life. Peter wants you to trust this word. He wants you to trust it. And that's where he's going the rest of chapter 1. Verse uh, 16. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. And I want to I reassure you, because I, I, I love that this is here. Um, especially if you're one who struggles to believe that the Bible is reliable and, and, and trustworthy. There are a lot of voices out there today, still look it up on the internet, that say the Bible is exactly what Peter says it's not. Cleverly contrived myths. These words were put here hundreds of years after Jesus by people that were in power and wanted to have more power and wanted to control and wanted to, you know, preserve their status Missed. Peter says, no. I was there. I saw him. I heard the voice myself. I'm speaking to you as an eyewitness. This is my testimony. Now, you can choose not to believe an eyewitness, but you can't ignore it. Best biblical scholarship says that this letter was written within 50 years of Jesus' resurrection. It's pretty hard to just completely fabricate eyewitness testimony when people who were actually eyewitnesses were still alive. The much better thought the much better conclusion is that these are, in fact, eyewitness accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can, the, the, the particular scene in Jesus' life that he refers to is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call it the transfiguration. It's when Peter, John, James, Jesus takes them up on a mountain, and then suddenly Jesus becomes this white, brilliant, shining presence and Moses and Elijah show up. They've been dead for hundreds of years and they, Peter, they don't know what to make of this. What is going on? <laughs> and then the voice, God speaks just like he did at Jesus' baptism. He says, this is my beloved son who, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And they heard it. And that's what he, he quotes it back here. He says, we heard it. These are first-hand accounts. And Paul says that, you know, Jesus lived and he was buried according to the scriptures and he rose again three days later and appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses. The New Testament is based on eyewitness testimony. And you can believe it. It's true. And if it's true, then we have a choice to make. Paul says, 
God now commands every... He told this in, said this in Athens to people who had no religious background at all. They, these guys were not religious. And here's what Paul says. He says, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, to change. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man, Jesus, he is appointed. He's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And what happened when Paul said that? Again, just like when Jesus said the thing about the, the flesh and the blood, people start, they start going, uh, no, people don't rise from the dead. No, 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 no. But the thing is, here's the point that Paul's making, and the, the point that we see this through the New Testament. That why do people stop believing at that point? Is it because it's so hard to believe that God who created the atom and DNA could raise a man from the dead? Is it because that's so implausible and so hard to believe? Or is it because of what Paul said just before? That God now commands, because of this is true, God now commands everyone to repent. That because the resurrection is true, because the New Testament is true, that means something for you. It means you have to repent. It means you have to seek God. It means you have to know him. And and the New Testament said the reason we refuse to believe, the reason that we harden our hearts to that is because, not because I've examined the evidence and found it impossible, but because I don't want to change. I don't want to change. I like my life. I like being in control. I like who I am. I don't want to change. And if I read this, I have to change. If I believe, I have to change. And I don't want to do that. So that's what goes on in the human heart. So what goes on in my heart? That's what keeps me from this word, because I I don't want to change. Now, the second reason Peter says why why I can trust the Bible, why you can trust the Bible, is that all of this eyewitness testimony that's in the New Testament, he says it actually corresponds to everything that came before it, to the prophets. That's the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible. Over and over again in the New Testament, you find these phrases, according to the Scriptures or as it was written. These are little flags that are there to alert you that the things that are in the New Testament are not new. Uh, They were promised before, sometimes hundreds of years before, and now they're being fulfilled. That the same God who uh, created the universe is the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. There is a one God that continues and one story that continues from Genesis to Revelation and on until today. Peter here says it this way. He says, we now have the prophecies, or we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, strongly confirmed. And again, here's the hook. Here's the, here's the kicker for, for you and me. And because it's been strongly confirmed, you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a, da- in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Right now, we don't have Jesus with us physically, but we have his spirit, we have his word, and it is a light to you, and without it, you're walking around in the dark. You, if you're, you're in a dark and corrupt world and culture, and you need a light to navigate that, and here it is, the light of, that God has given you in his word. Pay attention to it. Use it. Don't leave it at home. Put new batteries in it if you need to. Dust it off. That's why you can trust the Bible. It's the word strongly confirmed. Now pay attention to it. You need this encouragement. The only person you're cheating is yourself if you're not in this word. Now I'm going to get practical here for a minute. Some of us cheat when it comes to reading the Bible. I'm guilty. We cheat because we don't spend time just here. What do we do? We come to church and we listen to sermons about the Bible. Okay. We listen to podcasts. We read books. We, um, you know, open it up for, uh, you know, I'm feeling a bit dry today. Open to a psalm and get one verse. Okay, great. All good. Good to go. And we, we and I, I've, I've been there. I know a lot of Christians are there. We're in good company. But man, 
It's a Bible teacher that I really love. It's called Jen Wilkin in the States. And she says the way that most of us approach the Bible is like, is as if we would go out and eat. Remember, because it's like nourishment, right? It's like if you ate fast food every day. Because you're hungry. And you know you're hungry, and your soul is hungry, and, and you need to satisfy that hunger. And there are multiple ways you can do it. You can, you, fast food will satisfy your hunger f- for a time. It'll do the job. But it doesn't really nourish you. And she says, we need to take a slow food approach to the Bible. Don't just settle for going and listen to what someone else says about the Bible. Get into it yourself. Don't just talk about the Bible, but really read and study it and seek to understand it. And yes, it can be hard. Some parts of the Bible are harder to understand than others. And you have to put in a little bit of work and you have to kind of know how sentences and grammar works a little bit. I don't know if you like, like my, my mom was a grammar teacher growing up, so I, like, I always had her edit my papers and they were just like, oh, so much read all the time. Grammar, but, but you learn over time. The red, it gets less and less red as I got older, praise God. And, and so it's, it is, like, it can, be cha- it can be challenging. Some of the sentences are complex, but the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And the more you hunger for it. She, she compares it to, like, GPS. I, I learned to drive before GPS and before mobile phones. I don't know what that makes me, but I, I just, like, I think about it now. I have kids, and I'm thinking, five years, and my oldest daughter's going to be 16. She's going to have her else. Well, she thinks she will. And I'm like, you're going to have a mobile phone, and actually, you're just going to dial me, and I'm going to listen the whole time. Like, you're, I'm just not going to hang up. I feel like the helicopter parent thing is like a real temptation. And I'm like, man, what did I do? I had four accidents in my car in the first two years of driving. I'm not looking forward to this period of life. No, it's by God's grace, trusting him. Um, But, man, we have GPS. Nobody knows how to get anywhere now because we all just plug it into Google Maps. And, um, but if you've had, when you leave here tonight and you go home and you get in your car or you walk or, and you have to put your home address in GPS, I'm going to assume that you just moved in. If you've lived in the same place for 20 years and you have to put your address in GPS when you go home from church, you're doing it wrong. If you've been a Christian for 20 years and you open the Bible and you can't understand a thing that you're reading unless you've got, you listen to Tim Keller talk to you about it, you're doing it wrong. You, you have uh, the ability through, you have the spirit in you. You are able to under, read and understand this word. There's a lot of people that came before you hundreds of years ago that died so that you could have this word in your language. You, you can't do it. And if you think, oh, no, I can't, you don't know me. Well, I, we can help. We're, we're a community together. I'm not sending you out there, throwing you in the deep end. Like we, can, we want you to be empowered to be in this word and to study it on your own and to study all of it. And as a result of knowing him in his word, to have joy and grace and peace and confidence and hope and be use, being useful in the world. So why, why do you need it? Here's how Peter concludes. Above all, know this. No prophecy of scripture, not a single word, not a single sentence in here came about because of the prophet's own interpretation. No prophecy ever came about by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Every word, every part of this book is useful for you. Now, some of it, is an, it, it can be an acquired taste, but it will nourish your soul. It will nourish your soul. You need this word to fulfill your purpose in life, to know God and to become like him and to enjoy him. You need it to become pure as he is pure in a corrupt world. You need it because your faith rests on the eyewitness testimony of actual events that actually happened because you need a firm foundation for your faith. You need to know when you hear his still small voice in the still of night that it is his voice and not the voice of an imposter.
Because that's where Peter goes next. He's talking to his sheep about false, false teaching. Because he, he was old enough, he'd seen people get plucked off, picked off by wolves. And Jesus said, there's wolves out there. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. How do you avoid the wolves? How do you recognize the wolves when they're dressed up and look like sheep? You know him. You know his voice because you spend time listening to it. So let's make this a year of growing in breadth and depth in the knowledge of God in his word. I've said this before and here. We've, we have a Facebook group that you can join. You can jump on the Sea Light app to have a Bible reading plan. I know that that can be, it's not a thing that I said just to do real fast and tick off. So you're like, I don't have time to read four chapters a day. Okay, um, you know, that maybe just pick one book, one book or even one chapter and just work on that for the next week. Listen to it in your car just over and over again until the words start to get in your mind and into your heart and start to do the surgery and the work that they're designed to do. I mean, if you need someone to pray for you, go to your D. If you're in a discipleship group, go to your DG and say, hey, please pray for me. I want to have more hunger for the Bible and I want to be able to do it better. So pray for me. Ask me how I'm going. And again, like I said, it's not, even if it's just one chapter over and over again until, until you, it gets in you and then go on to the next one. There's no one formula way of doing it. You know, I know I've been in, see, I have four kids. I've been in seasons of life where I can't even go to the toilet without being interrupted. Like, I understand busyness, but I also know that I cannot go a day without his word, without knowing him. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you give us your words, your words of truth, your words of life, your words of hope. You have given us what we need for life and godliness. You've given us your great and precious promises. Lord, we thank you for this gift. Lord, help us not to neglect it. Help us to hunger for this word. And as we feed on it, may we hunger more. Lord, do this in us and for us. May we know you. May, you, may your promises be fulfilled. Thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.